duty to show it. I'm not saying this because I for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Thanks, Ben. Well, this is our second to last message in this study of the book of Philippians. We'll be finishing up next week. And so let's take a look at this passage uh, one more time. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. We believe that you have set it apart in your wisdom, in your foreknowledge even, for something great, a real working of your spirit that we expect to happen in this moment, in our hearts, in our church, because of your word, because of your promise, because you are here. So we trust in you. We pray our blessing upon this time, upon my speaking, but most importantly, upon your speaking, Holy Spirit, and upon our hearing and our receiving of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost every day, a boy would ride his bike with his buddies on the block. One day, he noticed that his friend's bike seemed faster and shinier, and he became very envious, of course. So he asked his big sister to help him sell it so that he could buy a better bike. Well, a few days later, he saw a for sale flyer at the bus stop. A sale flyer for a bike that seemed just right. And he ran home to his sister and with great excitement told her, I just saw an ad for a bike and it's exactly what I'm looking for. It has this feature and that feature and it's my favorite color and it just looks awesome. His sister listened with furrowed eyebrows and then finally asked, were you at the bus stop? I put that flyer there. It sounds like your dream bike is the one you've already got. <laughs> We're not so different from this little boy, are we? Except that it might not be in your life, my life, longing for a better bike. Maybe it's a better apartment. Maybe it's better friends, maybe a better boss, maybe a better body. We're always looking for better and for more. Even when sometimes what we really need and really want, our dream bike, is the one we've already got. In other words, we struggle with being content. We have a hard time finding contentment, which is the focus of today's passage. Paul here is wrapping up his letter to the church of Philippi in ancient Greece. As we've talked about in the past, he had been arrested for preaching the gospel, and the Philippians had been concerned about him for a while, but they couldn't do anything about it. He was in chains under house arrest. He was a hundred hundreds of miles away. How could they help? What could they do? Until finally they came up with a plan.
plan. They would send one of their members, Epaphroditus, whom we heard about earlier in the letter, to send Paul a gift, basically a, a big care package, which included generous financial support and personal letters of encouragement, which was in part why Paul wrote this letter as a word of gratitude and reciprocal encouragement to the Philippian church. And this is why he writes in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. So here in these verses, Paul's expressing his gratitude and yet he also wants to be clear, he doesn't want them to feel obligated to send him more. Why? Well, he says because he's content with what he has. As he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so what we're given in this passage is a profound and practical insight into the nature of contentment. And here we find, and we're going to see three things. First, the meaning of contentment. What is it? And secondly, the challenge of contentment. Thirdly, the source of true contentment. This is what we find in this passage. The meaning of contentment, the challenge of contentment, and the source of true contentment. Let's take a look. First, the meaning of contentment. What is it anyway? What is contentment? The word that Paul uses in verse 11 where he says, I have learned to be content, basically means to be sufficient. Uh, it means enough. So first of all, contentment, if we could slowly build together a, an understanding, a definition of contentment, contentment means to be satisfied with what we have. It's a satisfaction of the soul. Uh, contentment is when your heart's desires are resting and not raging. And someone says, well, that just sounds like an excuse to be lazy, to kind of just sort of check out and not care. Well, no, it's clear here that contentment's not passivity. It's, it's not just shoulder shrugging, oh well. It's not boredom. Contentment is strength. Paul is clear that as he's talking about where this comes from, he says, I can do all this through him, through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment is a form of inner spiritual strength. It's not passive. In fact, you could even say it's an inner fighting for a steadfastness of heart. It's an inner wrestling, a steadiness of the heart in a rocking world. Which leads us to the reminder that what we're talking about here is something spiritual, not just something natural. Paul here is not talking about natural temperament or personality. He's not just saying, be chill. 
You know, some of you are, are naturally just chill people. Uh, look, chillness is not godliness. Not in and of itself. Paul is talking about something that had to be built into his life. It's why he says, I have learned contentment. It's something that needs to be learned from the inside. He even calls it a secret. It doesn't come naturally, doesn't even come easily. It needs to be pursued, studied, learned, and it starts within by the grace of Jesus. So let's put it together, and here's a definition for you. Contentment, as Paul presents it to us in this passage, is the inner spiritual strength of a satisfied soul. The inner spiritual strength, not passivity, not just checked outness, not aloofness, not I don't care, not I'm shrugging my shoulders, but a strength inside of a satisfied soul, a heart that says, yeah, it's enough. Do you have that in your life today? Do you see marks of this definition? Marks of this kind of contentment in your life? Do you want it? Do you want it? Because it's a battle, isn't it? So our second point leads us to remember it's, it's hard to foster, to nurture this kind of contentment. We live in a world of discontentment. And in fact, to nurse that or to leave that in our hearts untreated and unidentified actually leaves our souls in danger. Here's the danger of discontentment. We live in a world that you might describe as one that's been seduced by the myth of more. That whatever's wrong with you now, that you would be happier, or you'd be more fulfilled, or you would be more you, the true you, the better you, if only you had this, or you had him, or you did that. The way in which it's sold to us, of course, through advertising and marketing, and then that's an easy target. The way in which we live lives constantly comparing our own lives with that of others. And we don't even realize how much we do this. The way that you're looking at another person's life, or maybe the way you're looking at yourself in the way you used to be. Comparison with myself, the former version. I used to be better, stronger. How do I recover that me? The way in which we can succumb to a picture of happiness in life as presented in movies or stories or in Facebook. Oh man, haven't you experienced this? How easily you're clicking around and whether if it's you hear people telling stories about their great adventures in life, overseas, or right in their own backyard, or you see pictures and you kind of notice, man, they're kind of going on better vacations. Oh, they're kind of, well, their kids seem to be behaving. Their kids have smiled for this picture. A feat I seem to have a hard time accomplishing. 
Their wedding was more beautiful. Their house is better. They've traveled to more places. They seem to be happier. You feel like you're missing out. You feel like you're falling short, underperforming. It's easy to blame Facebook, but how about our own hearts? Because this is where it all begins. The desires that we have, the longings, or lusts, a word that the Bible uses, too often only applied to things of a sexual nature. No, the Bible's use of this word lust is much broader. It applies to anything that we just want a little bit too much. It's an over-desire, a mega-desire, a must-have desire. Even if that desire started out as a good and innocent desire, but when it became a demand for more, more stuff, a better spouse, more comfort, greater security, a more pain-free life, a more exciting life. And should we be surprised that that's sort of the impulse of our hearts when if we read the Bible in its earliest pages, we come to know that the first sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve, in fact, was the sin of discontentment. God said, here you have everything that you need, most especially me. And yet in their hearts, they said, we want more. Thanks, God, but it's not enough. You're not enough. You see, sin, yes, it's rebellion. Sin, yes, it's breaking God's law. Sin, yes, it's idolatry. Sin, yes, it's running away from God. Sin, yes, it's a violation of the law of love and the law of justice. But dear friends, don't you see, sin is also a lack of contentment. God, you could have done better. God, you should have given me more where we fundamentally believe in our hearts that God has withheld something good from me. Nursed in our hearts then, and we can see this in our lives, I see it in mine, how this sort of discontentment absolutely can destroy your souls. Because it destroys our relationships. You can't celebrate that friend who posted those great Facebook pictures that tempt you to envy them. You can't celebrate good in their lives anymore, can you? Because envy breeds spite and competition. Your neighbor who seems to have things that you wish you had and you're looking at what you have don't you know you're sort of stuck in this life of comparing left and right and up and down? You're always then, always either looking up at people, resenting them, or looking down on them, gloating in what you have that they don't. You've consigned yourself to a life of pride or jealousy. Discontentment destroys our relationships, but it also destroys ourselves. 
how much we succumb to self-loathing. I just don't like myself. I don't like what I see in the mirror. I don't like what I am or what I've done. The way in which we become miserably unhappy, swallowed up by our lusts, swallowed up by self-pity. But most of all, deep down, the source of it all is that it destroys our relationship with God. Because if you're not outright resentful towards God, you've dropped the ball in my life. There's more out there you haven't given me or been for me. If not that, then at least you live with a quiet suspicion towards God, sort of eyeing him. Like, are you sure you don't got more in that bag? <laughs> are you sure you don't have more in your heart? Seeing God as the unwilling miser rather than the generous God who lavishes his love upon you and me, sinners undeserving of his grace. But we can't see it because our hearts are swallowed up by discontentment. Longing for other things that we begin to treat as God as the saviors of my happiness and my security. As one author has put really helpfully, you know, if we're honest and accurate, discontentment isn't a kitchen knife that sometimes slips in your hand and requires a bandage. It's a bomb that rips apart your life, relationships, and faith until you can't put the pieces back together, it's a malignant cancer, not a common cold. Dear friends, do you see discontentment in your life? Do you see the things that are provoking discontentment? Can we get practical here? What are the habits or the practices in your life that maybe you just kind of go along with when in fact it's stoking up the temptations of the soul. It's sort of encouraging you to gaze over or to compare. It might be a sort of a kind of magazine. It might be a kind of professional interaction. It might be the way that you look at other homes. It might be the way you watch people. It might be the way you... What is it? Or what shows on Netflix is it? <laughs> or what books? Or what friends? that whisper these things into your ears? What is it that breeds and fertilizes the weeds of discontentment in the garden of our souls? Do we know? Are we aware of it? The important question, of course, then, is what do we do with it? So thirdly, the source of contentment, where do we go to get it? So sure, I've got it, it's bad, this discontentment, but what do I do and where do I turn? The good news is the Bible and Paul here in this passage tells us. And here's the important thing for us to understand and realize. And it's so simple and yet so profound and it so escapes us. And here it is, contentment requires a change of heart which is the last place we typically look. Most of us believe that the solution to my discontentment, 
that the source of my newfound contentment is the change of my circumstances. I would find satisfaction of soul if I could just get that new bike or spouse or job or travel itinerary. What I really need says our misconstrued soul are new circumstances. When Paul points us and promises us a new heart. Philippians 4.13 is perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages, verses in all the Bible. It's one of the most well-known, in fact, because it's attractive in its wording, in the promises it seems to hold out to us. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. And so you make trinkets and bumper stickers and t-shirts and you sell it as Christian par paraphernalia. And if you're a football star, you put it on your black eye strips so that the whole world can see and get excited for this God who's going to help you win the Heisman. And he won it. Team Tim Tebow and apparently did have a lot of talent and apparently strength. And yet, and I'm not knocking Tebow, he's got knocked around enough. But what is the right understanding of this passage too often taken out of context? Here's the thing. Ironically, this verse is used too much to validate our discontentment. God, give me strength so that I cannot be discontent and get that thing I really need, which you're going to give me strength to get. When in fact, if you look at the context, it's actually the very opposite message that Paul is sharing with us. It's not about making your wildest dreams a reality with the help of God. It's about embracing your reality even when it's not your wildest dreams, which really takes the help of God. Paul is talking about living in a whole range of circumstances where he says there have been times in my lives where I've had a lot of stuff and times in my life when I've had absolutely nothing. Times in my life when I've been rich and times in my life when I've been poor. Times when it's been easy going and times when it's just stunk. Times when there's been a worn out on my life, times when my life has been threatened, times when I've been beaten so bad I almost lost my life. And I write these words to you as I am presently in chains, possibly about to lose my life in execution in Rome. In the midst of this, I tell you, he says, whatever the circumstances, I have found the secret to face them, whether good or bad or high or low, and it's the secret of the grace of contentment. In other words, he's talking about a heart that's plugged in to a different place besides his circumstances. That my soul doesn't soar only when I've got a lot, 
and plunge when I don't have nothing, but it's plugged in to the strength of Christ so that whether high or low, I'm the same. Full. Satisfied. Enough in Christ. Paul is not encouraging Christians in this verse to go out and conquer the world. He's reminding them that they can persevere and press on even when it feels like the world is conquering you. It's not about having inner strength to change your circumstances. Philippians 13 is about relying on God's strength to be content with circumstances, in fact, that you cannot change. Can you just imagine for a second to be so plugged in in your soul into a reservoir that would never run dry, the fountain of life, to be plugged into the person of Jesus to draw from his strength in your deepest moments of weakness. That you might be able to say, I've just found this thing that I can't describe in any other way, but to then to call it a secret because it just feels like no one else has it. But I want to share it with you. This newfound Jesus contentment where I can get strength to persevere whether I live in plenty or in want. As one author helpfully put it, this verse is not about winning the football game. It's about how you respond when you lose the football game or get injured for the season or fail to make the team all together. It's not about getting that new job, that new house, or that new outfit. It's about finding your satisfaction in the job you already have in the house you already own, and in the wardrobe already hanging in your closet. I can do all this, even when it hurts, and even when it looks like it all might end, through him who gives me strength which is, of course, a strength of identity to know that in Christ you have been called a son or daughter, to know that you are loved because of who you are in Jesus, not because of what you have done, which means that all the discontentment of heart for not having performed as well or having failed or not having achieved what you feel like you need to achieve to impress God or impress neighbor, you can find this quietness and rest of soul to say, to be in Christ, to be his son, to be his daughter, it's enough, it's enough. To have a strength of trust to know that even when it feels like I'm lacking that thing that I wanted or thought I really needed, I don't have. And yet here's a God who has promised to provide for all my needs. A God who's in the wonderful but frustrating habit of giving me not just what I want, but what I really need. A strength of trust in this provider, Jehovah Jireh. 
that releases my heart from its grip on that thing that I've basically bowed my whole life before as it were an altar must-haves that I can now back away from with trusting contentment because I believe with strength in my heart that God is on my side. A strength of trust that enables me to know that God is all-wise. That though it appears through human eyes that he's withholding from me, to know that I can trust his heart, that he is for me. And that he can see all things, that if I could see what he sees, that I could believe that I would choose as he has chosen for me. But I don't see. So I'll trust in the all-wise one. Submitting my will to his. Believing that I can be satisfied knowing that in his economy and by his grace, according to his promise, he withholds no good thing from me. Full contentment with one's condition, writes Thomas Boston, the old Puritan writer, full contentment with one's condition goes in equal pace with a man's clearness as to his interest in Christ. Do you want satisfaction of soul? Go to the one who can satisfy all your deepest longings. For significance, he seats you at his table and crowns you with his crown. You can't get any greater in the eyes of God than you are today in Christ. The satisfaction of soul, of knowing that you've been loved, that you've been forgiven, that you've been set free from the guilt of sin, that you've been counted as righteous in his sight, that you've been endowed with dignity, gifts and skills now appointed to his service, that you might make him reign in his kingdom through all parts of life, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your homes. The dignity of being called into his service, not sidelined, but wearing the uniform of the king. Satisfying your heart. A heart that so often lusts with discontented longing for significance and security. People and things in this world cannot make us content. Relationships fail. Achievements fade. Experiences disappoint. What we need is something or someone above all these things that they can't touch, that never runs out, that never changes. Do you know I know someone like that? Do you know him? His name is Jesus. He gives strength to weak people, discontented, self-destroying people like you, like me, who by his grace can begin by faith, proclaim and confess as the psalmist does in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.
Like the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3, after a long litany of warnings from the Lord himself, after hearing about the calamity and even judgment that's coming to his own nation, to himself, amongst the people of Israel, that he might have the faith, the confidence, the security to confess these words. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. What is the cattle in your life that is dying, the sheep in your pens that are lacking, the fig tree in your experiences that is not budding, the grapes that are not producing, the olive crops that are failing? What are the circumstances around you that tempt you to be discontent? Do you know the Savior that gives you strength to say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He is my strength. As the Apostle has said, Have you learned this secret, dear friends? Have you learned what it is to be content, whatever the circumstances? That you might say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Can you say together with him, with me, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Let's pray. We long for this, God. We long for it so much. I think we're not even finding courage to believe it can be possible to be satisfied in you and to be free from our broken circumstances all around us. But we know that the greatest promise that looms in this passage is that you are the king who gives strength to weak people. And so even in this endeavor to learn and to grow in contentment, we confess first and foremost, we are weak. And so we look to you, fill us and give us strength for our contentment, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Let's stand.